Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Well, it's always been a David versus Goliath struggle for the vaping industry. Facing countless regulatory hurdles, the U.S. industry mostly comes up short when seeking relief from the courts for what it believes to be arbitrary and capricious rulemaking by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. With FDA poised yet again to deliver a death blow to the U.S. vaping industry via its pre-market tobacco application process, a lawsuit championed by Big Time Vapes and the United States Vaping Association could stave off disaster if plaintiffs successfully argue before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that Congress ceded too much authority to the executive branch when it passed the Tobacco Control Act of 2009, an authority used by FDA to deem vaping products to be tobacco products. Now joining us today is the lawyer behind the effort, Jared Navar, USVA legal counsel. Jared, thanks for joining us today on Rug Watch. My pleasure, thank you. Well, it's great to have you. Now, first off, we had hoped to have USVA spokesperson Vanessa Reynolds on the show as well today, but hey, no Reg Watch gear. We just couldn't accommodate it on such short notice, but we hopefully will have her on in a later episode. Jared, let's jump right into this. Now, top line us the lawsuit. What is it about and where does it stand? Sure. Well, in a nutshell, uh, it's a it's a constitutional challenge to the deeming authority that was given to the FDA in the Tobacco Control Act itself. So uh, we, we ch- if we win, basically it means that the deeming rule is invalid um, because the statute is invalid um, itself, and the statute violates the separation of powers. That's our argument. So, uh, this, so, so you're going at the heart of the deeming rule then? That's right, and not just the deeming rule. We're going to the heart of the statute that gives to the FDA the authority to deem any first place so it wouldn't it's not like they could reissue a deeming rule under conditions it's that they wouldn't have the authority to deem anything less than until congress writes a new law yeah i think that's uh that's interesting because i mean this is the power of the administrative state so just for everybody we do our schoolhouse rock scenes here there's three branches to the government You've got your legislature, you've got your executive, that's where the president is, and all of the regulatory uh, authority and departments are all under actually the president, if you didn't know that. And then the other one's the judicial branch. So out of those three, Congress has been given powers from the Constitution, and they're supposed to do something with it, and instead they've delegated those powers over basically to the president and the executive and to the regulatory authorities. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. That's um, that's the issue in a nutshell, and it's called the, the the vesting clause. So you have in the Constitution, you have three vesting clauses, um, and Article One, Section One says all legislative power is vested in the Congress of the United States. So that that is the genesis of our argument. And so the Congress of the United States is supposed to make the laws now but i thought they do make the laws i mean we hear all the time that there's this law and they passed this law aren't those the laws well it's in in a sense (laughs) that's right and and so you know you can go into various levels of of detail here depending on how you know how deep you want to get into the you can dive deep dive deep right so i mean in the last hundred years or some or so in the united states we've had this 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 you know, increasingly uh, powerful administrative state. Um, And so it's no, it's no surprise that, you know, Congress can and does give um, authority to various administrative agencies under the direction of the president. Um, 
to you know, but usually it's to fill in details and statutes. It's to it is Congress will set a standard, and then the agency, which supposedly has these experts um, who are supposed to not be political, they're they're given the authority, they're delegated the authority to do all kinds of different things. And but the the essential point um, to bring it back to our case is the, the Congress, the Constitution requires Congress to make the policy. And that basically, read the case law, what that means is Congress has to set the standards. They have to set the parameters under which the, the agency um, you know, makes the, the, the decisions about how to apply the policy. So it's that standards and guidance and lack of uh, and so forth. Let's get to in a second. Broad stroke for us, the, the landscape of lawsuits to how you know if from the vaping industry, there's been a few, um, maybe more than a few, in fact, but there hasn't been a lot of success there, has there? No, that's, that's we'll correct on both fronts. There's been uh, several federal cases um, challenging the deeming rule directly under various theories. And, and we're, not, we're not even talking about, you know, you, there's been a, a lot of litigation against various state policies in the U.S., uh, New York, you know, the flavor ban there and various states. but but speaking just in terms of challenges to the FDA's regulation and the deeming rule itself, there have been several of those, that's right, uh, under different theories. And we're, our case is the only one that, that brings this, um, it's called the separation of powers challenge that's, that's called the non-delegation challenge or non-delegation principle. Is this, uh, are, you, uh, are you charting new territory here in terms of um, potentially winning? Uh, well, I wouldn't say, you know, and this gets into the, the meat of my argument. My argument is that we're not charting new territory at all. In fact, uh, if the court simply applies the law that's already on the books, the case law that's already there, we should win under a case that the Supreme Court handed down in 1935. Um, but of course, you know, the government's argument, is that this, arg this non-delegation argument is something that a lot of lawyers, a lot of other people who looked at this, you know, looked at ways to challenge the, the deeming uh, rule may have may have looked over or maybe thought was not was not going to gain much traction. Um, and then and, and they can be forgiven for that, because really, the Supreme Court breathed new life into this argument uh, in, in July of last year. Maybe it was June when they issued a, a decision called Gundy, Gundy versus the United States. And. And even though, there, so that was, that involved a non-delegation challenge to a completely different statute, has nothing to do with vaping, but the the plaintiff, the or the the criminal defendant there was making a, an argument uh, under this principle against a, a criminal statute, um, and he lost that argument, but it was a five to four decision. Uh, it, it it was a little more complicated than that, but essentially it was clear that there were four judges on the Supreme Court. Out of eight, at the time, Kavanaugh was not fully uh, vested as a, so he didn't participate in the case. Right. So you basically had, you had the court with one one member down, and you had this weird split. But it was clear that, not counting Kavanaugh, four members of the court um, were were ready to to reinvigorate, you could say, this this principle of non delegation. Um, and 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 then so when that came out, you know it. Ever since then, especially, there's been several other cases that, that you know, in, in other areas of law, that other areas of regulation, that have, have brought the not this this same argument. 
Um, and so there's various cases percolating up, but, but, but a lot of people think, you know, lawyers who follow this issue believe that it's only a matter of time before, uh, before the Supreme Court has, has a case where, that they're going to take and they're going to really enforce this. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and there's more to get into there, and, I, and I'm certain that we're going to be able to help kind of focus people's uh, attention on, on that. Before we do, uh, USVA, a fairly new organization, can you tell us about it? Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's absolutely right. They they were only started in uh, July and August of 2019, um, and then we filed this lawsuit in, in August 2019. So, um, you know, and they they were they were started by uh, a group of about a dozen or so small businesses in the vaping industry, um, some 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 manufacturers that purely you know, manufacture liquids and and some uh, and, and retail shops. Um, but basically, you know, the the genesis of it was that at the time, this was this was right after Judge Grimm in the Maryland case issued his remedy order, where he said he was going to accelerate the uh, EMTA deadline radically to May 2020, right? And and of course, um, that was a that was a death blow, or would be, you know, if that is enforced, that's a death blow to 99% of the industry. And so these this group of small businesses said, you know, the, the other challenges that were out there weren't really attacking the root of the problem. Um, because at mo you know, even if they prevailed and I could go into the specific cases that were out there, but, um, and some of them still being litigated, but even if they win, you know, the, the, uh, it would just change the, the time at which the deadline would apply. Right. It might, it might buy people more time, but ultimately you have to get to the root of the problem, which is that, you know, the FDA's authority to impose this PMTA requirement in the first place. Um, because the way that the Tobacco Control Act is written, the if, if you apply it to the vaping industry, there's simply no way, and especially the way the FDA has interpreted the, the TCA's PMTA requirements and applied them to the vaping industry, there's no way that... Uh, that anybody can can pay for even a single PMTA application for a single flavor, let's say. You take one flavor and one bottle size with one nicotine content, uh, you're, you're looking at an application cost of, of at least $200,000, and really it's more in the millions, um, because you've got to do all these, you know, human studies, uh, su- studies of human subjects and um, stability testing, all kinds of chemical testing, and the labs aren't even available. So it's not even something that's um, that's really feasible under the current timeline. Um, so, uh, yeah, clearly. So if, so precisely what are you asking from the court? What are you asking them to do? Well, we, it's a pretty, um, ambitious request, but if we win, we're asking the court to, the, the, if we win, it means the court's going to issue an order that says, the FDA that the provision, the deeming provision in the Tobacco Control Act itself violates the Constitution, which would mean that not only is the deeming rule as currently issued uh, unenforceable, so the PMTA requirement goes away, the, you know, the flavor bans, all of that stuff goes away immediately uh, in terms of federal regulation. But it would go beyond that. It would mean that not only is the current rule invalid, but you know the FDA can't reissue another one in any way. They can't. They can't regulate vaping whatsoever unless and until 
Congress writes a statute that that's more specific. And that's because we're asking the court to say that the deeming authority itself in the Tobacco Control Act violates the separation of powers. This is not a decision that can be made by, uh, you know, at the whim of one secretary in the executive branch. Well, and it's uh, kind of too bad because the regulatory branch, the administrative branch, and then, of course, the judi- the judicial branch, they don't seem to be too friendly towards vaping uh, these days. I've got Judge Grimm's uh, order here. So this was the NGO versus FDA case. And this was the memorandum. So the order from Judge Grimm, I was just going to read it because, th- you know, this is how, you know, uh, the district court judge, right, uh, came up with uh, his ruling. It was bound to happen. Just as email and text messages replaced snail mail, social media made face-to-face communications passe, and the internet rendered libraries all but obsolete. It was only a matter of time before electronic cigarettes replaced combustible tobacco products as a desirable means of nicotine delivery. As it turns out, even addiction has become electronic, not only among adults, but particularly for teenagers and younger kids especially as manufacturers of e-cigarette products have learned if they are fruit or dessert flavored and marketed as cool and alluring. Well, as Commissioner Gottlieb says, since 2014, have been the most, e-cigarettes have been the most popular nicotine product among American teenagers and e-cigarettes popularity is accelerating. So, you know, this, this attitude that the judge had is very glib, um, in my opinion. I'm sure there's stronger words to use you're a ma- you're an officer of the court, so I, I would assume you can't find stronger words. Uh, well, I might surprise you there. I mean, it, I, I would say it's funny <laughs> as you're reading that. I was thinking to myself, it, it's that's like another non-delegation uh, challenge where you know Congress can't delegate its legislative authority to the executive branch, and and in that and what you just read from Judge Grimm, it's it's as if Judge Grimm thinks he can legislate. Um, from the judicial branch, which would also violate the vesting clause, you know, the legislative power. Yeah, um, that, that's exactly it. So when you say that, when you say that um, you're asking the court to make a order, a declaration that the deeming rule, that power that's in, entrusted into the FDA by Congress is unconstitutional, what makes it unconstitutional? Okay, so the... Um, what makes it unconstitutional is what's called the vesting clause in the Constitution. And again, there's three of them. And the one we're talking about is Article One, Section One. Article One deals with the Congress, with the legislative power. And it says it's very it's it's one sentence, it's probably about twelve words. And all it says is all legislative power herein granted, that is all legislative power granted under the Constitution to the federal government shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall be composed of the House and and House of Representatives and the Senate. Um, and even though that's a very short sentence, there's a lot balled up in that in terms of, of you know, re- Republican theory, constitutional um, law, because Article One goes on to very specifically set out what what is the legislative uh, process, you know, and you have and, and there are these very careful controls built into it. Um, you have the two houses. You have the House of Representatives and the Senate, which are which no, you know, are are elected by different constituencies, right? I mean, senators are elected for six-year terms. House members elected for two years. Um, House members' uh, elections occur every two years, so the whole House potentially is rolling over every two years, whereas the Senate is is built to be a more stable body. 
the whole, you know, and there are more, there are more little um, uh, processes built into that. But the point is that it's, it's deliberately set up to have multiple points of entry, right? So the founders knew that the legislative power, the power to make laws, the power to declare what policies um, will govern people's daily lives is, is they wanted to build a system that made it harder, not easier to pass laws because that ultimately protects freedom. Um, so they built this, this inertia into the system. And when you, the, the issue here is that but when Congress punts its authority to an executive agency and, and gives that authority to one, you know, one man or one woman at, at the head of an agency or the president himself or herself, it bypasses all of those protections that are supposed to allow people, you know, to go into a congressional hearing and give testimony. You know, you have your various representatives in the House and Senate from all the parts of the United States uh, elected at different times that are supposed to weigh in and, and shape that policy. And, and all that is bypassed avoided um when when congress gives that authority up so so let's track that for a minute because of course all regulatory agencies have public consultation processes where they are supposed to be receiving that feedback that you're describing that would be you know gathered from congressional hearings and so forth so why is the regulatory uh public you know engagement not good enough to replace that at the congressional level? Well, sure, and that's a good question because you, you're right. You, under the Administrative Procedures Act, you do have certain protections built in, but ultimately it's, it's, it's never a substitute for the actual legislative process because ultimately you have to look at who are the decision makers. When legislation is being written by Congress, the decision makers are, are the 535 members of, of the House and the Senate. And then the president who has to to approve it, right? But so you have all those all those various constituencies that are represented by 535 members of Congress, elected in different ways from different states and different districts. They have to vote to to make a policy, right? But if you if you punt the issue to the exec, executive branch, they you, you know they can give you meetings if they want. But ultimately, they get to make the decision, and it's one person making the decision. In a way, um, I could ask this question actually, which would, would which would put you in a position where you would be um, having to defend politics involved in these kinds of decisions. So most people are like, "Oh, push that over to the regulator," because then there's no politics. Are you crazy? Why do you want these big important decisions to be, you know, handled by? Joe Blow, that used to be, you know, a truck driver or a milkman or whatever, who's now a congressman. But isn't the whole point is that politics have to stay involved because they're involved on the regulatory end. They can say they're objective and they're experts all they want. But I think vaping has proved that if you're ideologically captured and you are at the regulator, you can do a lot of damage. And, it, and it's only the political aspect of it that, you know, could potentially save vaping. The regulators aren't going to do it. No, no, that's right. That's the absolute. And in this case, it's funny. That's actually a great point. And it's something we've hit on, on our, in our brief because, um, you know, one of the common refrains or defenses of the, 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 the authority of Congress to give broad delegations to the executive agency courts will in the last, for the last 85 years have frequently said, 
Well, our modern world is just so complicated and complex and fact-bound and scientific that Congress just can't do its job, really. You have to you have to be able to give these broad delegations of authority and then let the regulators, the supposed experts in the executive branch, make the actual decisions and fill up the details. And and, and a lot of that has gone on. And, and you know, the, the, so the question, it, it can be a hard issue because the question is how much is, how much, how much of a delegation, like at what point is it too broad? You know, how specific does Congress have to be? Because it, it is legitimate to say that, you, you know, Congress can't look at, at every specific factual application of a law and say, yes, this fits or this doesn't fit. So there has to be a, um, a line drawn. And, and the problem here is that the Tobacco Control Act deeming provision just goes far beyond it. There's no, there's no limitations, no parameters whatsoever. Um, the, the FDA can do what it wants, but um, and let's t- let's talk about that then. Um, so the issue is not necessarily the fact that Congress is delegating. The issue is that they're not being specific enough with regard to FDA in this situation. Correct? That's right. Yeah. The idea is when you're specific enough, when you give when you give parameters, and you're you're essentially telling the agency what the policy is, and that is that is making legislation. When you declare the policy, you're making legislation, mm-hmm. and, and Congress just didn't do that here. So, um, so in the in the TCA, Congress has outlined that basically they don't define what a tobacco product is. They kind of do, but they they don't define e-cigarettes as a tobacco product. They mentioned a tobacco product, but they, they hand it off to the FDA to really be making those decisions on what is a tobacco product. Is that correct? Well, uh, I, would, uh, I, would, I would push back a little bit or clarify that, and that's okay. an important thing to clarify. There, Congress, the Tobacco Control Act does have a definition of tobacco product, uh, but, but the problem, it's, it's a really weird dynamic that's set up in the statute, because, and you have to think, you have to put it in the context of in 2009 when Congress wrote this law, you know, at the time uh, you had you had cigarettes on the market, of course, which was really the genesis for this law. Right. And all these deaths from combustible tobacco. But then you had at the same time, of course, you also had cigars and cigars come in all different kind of uh, varieties, premium and non-premium. And then you had, uh, you know, hookah was on the market. You had uh, roll your own tobacco and smokeless tobacco and snuff and all these different products. Right. And Congress wrote a definition in the TCA that defines, it says what a tobacco product is. But then the problem is it said Congress itself only applied the Tobacco Control Act's restrictions to a certain subset of tobacco products. And that was cigarettes and and, and, uh, uh, smokeless tobacco, essentially. And so cigars, hookah, uh, of course, ends, uh, which weren't really around uh, at the time. Uh, there were a little bit, but not really, right? So so the way Congress defined the term tobacco product in the law, but then they only applied the law to certain certain of those tobacco products, mainly cigarettes, and they, but they gave to the FDA the discretion to, in the future, apply it to whatever else the FDA wants to apply it to. It, you know, including and what the FDA did is actually, you know, seven years later, they come back and they apply it to everything that was on the market at the time, which Congress did not regulate, even though it was a tobacco product and to ends, and to anything else that 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 may come along in the future. 
that meets the tobacco product definition. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are specifically not fighting your case or hanging your hat, so to speak, on the definition. So some some have argued that uh, that you shouldn't be able to call these things tobacco products. Like just the very fact that you know this is this piece of plastic is called tobacco. Well, it's insane. You know, why is a battery tobacco? It's just, I mean, the insanity of it all is, is just pretty crazy. And I know that there has been some battles around that issue. But so th that's, for instance, FDA defines this uh, e-cigarette product as a tobacco product. Thus, it's subject to the deeming authority that it has and regulatory authority. And there it's scooped up into it. You're not getting into that, are you? No, and, and that's that's right. We're not. Uh, although... Uh... You, we have not made that argument, although I think it's a good argument. And many people have raised that. That could be raised in another case. Um, we wanted to focus on the non-delegation argument because because the um, I think it's once we looked at the statute and saw how bad it was, I think that is a um, you know a, a, frankly a stronger argument in terms of trying to get a victory um, because the agency does have discretion. You know, any if you take a, a definitional challenge. To the court, the, the courts has to give the agency some discretion in terms of how they apply it. Um, whereas I, I think actually in this case, the, the non-delegation challenge is actually crisper, um, stronger. But now, let me ask you just uh, just for a second. I was meaning to do it earlier. When you say non-delegation, so when Congress delegates to to FDA, what does non-delegation mean uh, exactly? Because is that a negation word kind of a, kind of a thing? Well, here? so it's it's it, it derives from from what we talked about earlier, which is the the vesting of the legislative powers in Congress. The Constitution vests legislative power in Congress, right? And the principle is that Congress Congress is the only one that can exercise that legislative power under the Constitution. They have no no right, no authority to delegate the legislative power. To the executive branch. So that's so, the non-delegation is actually saying they just don't have the power to delegate. That's non-delegation. Right, right. So let, let me throw this at you then. Um, isn't there concern that, uh, like, if you are to win this, that it would hamper all of— Well, it's not a concern for me. I, I would be very happy if there was a, a big wrench thrown into the entire administrative state that ground it to a halt and then— and some sanity could be placed back in there because they're responsible for tearing down the West, Western civilization. I'm sorry, but regulatory bodies are killing people right now. Now, that said, are, is there any concern that something like this could like really you know, mess up business for more than just FDA? Because you're at the heart of Congress's ability to push work off onto the regulatory bodies. Well, you know, this... The, the, this statute, there's a couple things to say about that. Num number one, and, and of course, that's the kind of question that a court might might have. And in fact, I'm sure we're going to argue this case in the Fifth Circuit to, to three judges um, on July 1st. And they may have that question, right? Like they that's in their minds. If I rule for the plaintiff here, what is that going to mean more broadly for, for the for the modern administrative state? And we, you know, as we brief this issue, you know, one of the points we return to is that this statute is is literally is so bad. This is the worst delegation. It's the most, it's it's the broadest, most 
you know, delegation devoid of any limitations and any standards for the FDA to apply or be limited by, that it's unconstitutional even under the current law. And we're going to reiterate to the court, you don't even have to, you know, change anything about the laws that are already on the books, the case law, to rule for us. We should win under this 1935 case that's already there. Now, if, but if we do win, and I believe that's true, uh, that this is so extreme that we should win and, um, and, and the government can still defend other, other delegations of authority. Um, but if we win, it is going to give momentum to this argument more broadly. And I think it'll, it'll, it'll make, it'll, you know, judges in the lower courts around the country will have to take a close look at any non-delegation argument that comes up because all of a sudden. Just lost your audio. Hold on one second. Did did you uh, did you do anything there? Can you still hear me? We've definitely lost your audio, my friend. That is a first.
Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. 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 All right, friends. Yeah, I knew something had happened there. It looked like you had uh, reached out to your phone, and uh, it was an Amber Alert, everyone, and it just kind of screwed the phone up there. Um, let me just make sure our viewers can uh, see us still here. Are we good? Okay, great. Awesome. Please let me know, guys, if uh, there's any outstanding issue. So... Where were we? I think I was asking you with regard to um, whether or not that this could set basically set a precedent that you know could you know really be a problem for other regulatory agencies, and could that um, play a role with the judges? Could they potentially um, you know take that into account? You were starting to talk about how that there's a lot of judges at these lower court levels. Let me just jump right in here then. From a political side, there's been a lot of change going on um, with these judges. Why don't you describe what that is? How, where is that change coming from? And how could that affect these kinds of cases? Right. Well, sure. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, ever since President Trump's election, um, we, we've had a, a, a Republican president who's been nominating um, judges who, who, uh, you know, compared to the, the judges that the Democrats would appoint to these federal benches are more apt, uh, more more willing to actually enforce the principles of the Constitution, the structural principles of the Constitution. Uh, right. Things like the separation of powers and federalism, um, those 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 big structural issues, structural protections of, of liberty in the Constitution. So. Uh, you've got you know more judges um, across the country who are sort of. Um, attuned to those issues, and, um, and and that's true certainly in the Fifth Circuit as well, where where our case is now. Well, so let me take you back to um, what seems to be what you've said to be as part of the core part of your case is that there wasn't enough um, guidance uh, specificity provided by Congress to um, FDA when it comes to the deeming regulations. So. Um, I do. I want to put your attention over to what the um, judge wrote in his order that basically has put you where you are right now. Um, and this is a memorandum opinion and order granting defendant's motion to dismiss, and that's FDA, and denying plaintiff's motion for a preliminary injunction, which is what you guys did. Now, I'm not getting into um, too much here of what the judge said at the start, but interesting, as background he provided, in 2009, Congress amended the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to include the TCA, which is the Tobacco Control Act, which vests the FDA with regulatory authority over the design, production, marketing, and advertising of tobacco products. Congress listed the following purpose of the act. And so being purpose, this is a policy, is it not, right? And I'll hand it to you in a sec. And so, um, as uh, our producer, Cindy uh, Schmidt, has highlighted here, authority with respect to the manufacture, marketing, and distribution of tobacco products, it seems pretty clear there, has the authority to address issues of particular concern to public health officials, especially the use of tobacco by young people and dependence on tobacco. So that's fairly specific. Um, and then, and such things as set national standards controlling the manufacture of tobacco products and the identity, public disclosure, and amount, 
oversight of the tobacco industry's efforts to develop, introduce, and promote less harmful tobacco products to ensure that consumers are better informed, to continue to permit the sale of tobacco products to adults, to promote cessation, to reduce disease risk, which I don't see them, well, I guess cessation they do, social costs associated with tobacco-related diseases and so forth. So is this not enough here in some people's minds that uh, Congress has indeed given them some charge of specificity in terms of, you know, discharging their duties to deem? Well, that is that is the FDA's argument here, and that's what that's what the federal judge uh, believed. And um, but uh, I disagree, and uh, I think th- this is the heart of the case, the heart of the appeal, because you know, and on on the you have to look beyond the surface of the other delegation cases that have been decided. And but the FDA basically said, look, there's been other cases where the court has said, you know, some statute passes muster because. Congress's discretion is limited by the, the the policy priorities or the you know the statements of intent, uh, statements of purpose in the in the preface of the act. Um, but the difference is that well, first of all, there's there's several problems with that in our case. Number one, every time that's been applied to save a statute, the, nonetheless, there has still been some statutory limit. There's been some some statement of policy in the statute itself and the operative uh, parts of the statute. Um, and then those, those statements of purpose are used to flesh out what that policy is in more detail, right? So th- they'll say things like, well, you can, you can regulate medical devices uh, if you find it you know, um, to be in the public interest, right? And the public interest is written into the statute, which is a very broad term, but sometimes the court will say, well, that's a broad term, but Congress listed the purposes in the act, and so we know what they meant when they said public interest. The difference here is that the deeming provision is so bad, they don't even have a limitation, that, that even one that's stated in those very broad terms. It just simply says uh, the FDA can regulate or not regulate any tobacco product. Um, so, so, it's, it's not, so there's no statutory limit on their power. Um, independent from the statements of purpose. But, but the second problem is, even if you had a statutory limit, um, those prefatory statements themselves are very ambiguous. They're hard, you know, it's, it's a Rorschach test. It means whatever you want it to mean. But, and as you read through them, some of them are, they're in tension with one another, right? So, so it says we want to promote cessation and, and uh, you know, deal with disease that comes from tobacco use. Um, is one of the purposes. Well, how does it how does it uh, further that purpose for Congress to knock out an entire industry of things that people are using to stop using combustible tobacco? Um, so you can't just look at those statements of purpose. And so ultimately, you the FDA under the current statute, some of those purposes are in, in tension with one another. They're in conflict, right? You have to decide: Do you want to promote cessation by allowing ends to remain on the market? Or do you want to, uh, you know, get them off the market because you want to you want to prioritize stopping, you know, um, high school kids from starting to vape? And and it can't be left up to the FDA to, to to weigh those priorities and decide which one they want is more important, which is what you have right now. 
So, you know, the, the Congress needs to make that decision, not the FDA. So, are you, so ultimately, in the end, this is you're, you're asking for this issue to be punted back to Congress. Right. To be returned to Congress, to be right. Yeah, returned is. Yeah, that's right. To be returned to Congress. Um, now, there was interesting in the NGO versus FDA case, which is the Judge Grimm, which we just referenced, which is what's put us into this position right now where uh, the short timeline on the PFTA, which, you know, COVID got the extension into September. Now, it was interesting about that case because when the FDA lost, um, their, I think their appeal was less than robust. And what was interesting is about, about losing that was that they were arguing that we are FDA and we've got all of the authority to decide what our guidance is, what our deadlines are, to move them around. We can do that all we want. And it is an actual you know, thing that most regulatory agencies would, are trying to protect, protect. And so for that ruling to happen uh, against the FDA, you know, I thought and others thought that, boy, that's a pretty big disaster, but it seems to not be um, at this point. So actually, do, are you able to point to that? Um, if the judges say that, you know, um, non-delegation, if we were to rule, you know, in favor of, of this suit, it would put other agencies in peril. And I'm harping on that because I know that it's something that judges really look at. Right, it is. And and from that, and so in terms of winning our case, we're going to emphasize, and we have in the briefs, emphasize that this statute is so extreme that we could win and it could have very little impact on, on other regulations already on the books. All it means is, you, you know, you you have to have at least some very broad statement of, of principle that's written into the operative provision of the statute. Um, you know, you must regulate as, as in the public interest, something like that, which I would say, I mean, that that should be a good challenge, too. That that should not be sufficient. But but the deeming provision is even worse than that. There's there's not even that level of very broad um, limitation on the FDA's discretion. So we're telling the court, look, you can rule for us. And this, I've read dozens, maybe a hundred of these delegation cases. This is the worst delegation I've seen. And the and, and I've said that since day one in this case in our briefs. And the FDA hasn't cited a single other delegation that is standardless like this. Um, and the longer the case goes on and they're not able to point to another example that's worse, the, the better we look. You know, I think that that's ultimately when we argue this to the Fifth Circuit panel, I'm going to try to get them to to have to put that question to the FDA's counsel. They need to answer that question. You know, they should say, look, the, the USVA has been telling us that this is the worst statute on the books. And, you know, what do you say to that? And they so far they've had no answer. And when it comes to FDA um, in other court cases that you could point to, explain to us how the Nicopur case actually provides some ammunition for your case. Right. Well, and this goes back, like I said, you know, before nobody's won on, on the appellate level uh, a non-delegation argument about 85 years. The last time was 1935, the um, Panama refining case called Panama refining. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, I lost, I lost my train of thought there think, thinking about that case. Oh, it's a good case. It's a hot oil case too, by the way. It's what I always love. It was about hot oil 
Okay. And and so at a lot of time, there was still a time in the U.S. where there were these, you know, cowboy, you know, oil drillers, you know. And during the Great Depression, there was a lot of wells, you know, sunk in the ground or old wells that have been around for a long time. There was a lot of oil production happening that was not sanctioned by the government. And, uh, and explained to us then the Congress had uh, vested some powers, delegated some powers to the president. Right. Well, that's right. Yeah. And in our in our case is basically saying we, we the, the dynamic under the, the deeming provision works the same um, in all material respects as as the, the, the president's authority to regulate or not regulate hot oil in the Panama refining case. It's it's exactly the same um, in terms of the way that the delegated power can be exercised. And um so that that's what we've we've emphasized. I mean, we placed our entire case on on an application of Panama refining. We're saying, look, the Supreme Court already said this specific type of delegation is unconstitutional, and um, and and that's why we should win. So and exactly. So that's what happened in that case is that the power that the Congress had, you know, delegated to the president that was struck down. Right. And essentially, the reason the reason it's exactly the same is because the 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 statute back then, uh, in, passed in the middle of the depression, gave gave to the president the authority to regulate or to not regulate uh, a certain type of commodity, um, which was was called hot oil. And um, it, you know, but essentially, the, the the decision for the president was, okay, I have the authority to to regulate this particular commodity or not. And pro prohibit its transportation and in interstate commerce, or allow it to be transported in interstate commerce. It's all, it's completely my decision, with no guidelines for you know. There's no like factual trigger that said if it's above a certain amount from a particular state, then you have to prohibit it from being transported. It was completely up to the president's discretion. But but notice that it was limited to you know it wasn't like the president was given authority to just do whatever he wanted, um, economy wide. It was limited to this specific defined commodity which was hot oil and in our case we have we have a we have a delegation of authority to regulate or not regulate anything that that um that is defined that meets the definition of a tobacco product um, and so so the deeming authority is unconstitutional just as the authority to regulate or not regulate hot oil was unconstitutional in 1935. So that's a good thing that you've got something that you fully point to and go, see here, I love the see here's. Now with the Nicopure, I was trying to bring up, and maybe my memory is not serving me correctly on this, but that was the FDA themselves in the Nicopure case in its defense argued that it had uh, all the guidance it needed or it doesn't need guidance, which was the, described for me exactly, exactly what FDA argued there. Oh, right. Oh, and this now now you've jogged my memory. This is what I was uh, trying to answer before. Uh, so in Nicopure, this was before the Supreme Court in, in last year's case, in the Gundy case, had come out and sort of reinvigorated this non-delegation argument. Uh, before that, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of off the books for most people. Lawyers weren't really thinking about it too much because nobody had won one of these arguments in 85 years. Um, and so in 2017, uh, the, the the FDA finds itself defending. Uh, you know, they were sued by Nicopure by a vape uh, a vape company, uh, and 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 Nicopure was arguing it was a it was a challenge under the Administrative Procedures Act, where their argument is that uh, 
the FDA had had arbitrarily exercised its power because it, you know, by deciding to deem all vaping products to be subject to the TCA. So the argument was that, you know, the FDA's decision to deem at that point um, had been arbitrary and capricious. Uh, and and the FDA's response was basically, look, how, you can't say our decision to deem these products was arbitrary because essentially we have no standards. We can do whatever we want. That's literally what they said. Um, and and I think you have it uh, quoted. Uh, the, the, and, the, and I have actually I have the quote here on page 47 of my brief. I don't know if you have that. Of your brief? Yeah, I can just uh, grab that. Just let me find that here. If, because I think it's it's hard to it's hard to believe this until you see it with your own eyes. Because the, you know the the FDA has really tied itself in a knot here in terms of trying to get out from our case based on what they said in the Nikopur case. So it's uh, forty seven. You said, right? Page page forty seven. And I've got it right here. And let's jump over to it. And this is forty seven. So I think this is it, right? Yeah. The it's it's page 47 at the bottom 47 of 76 i think you're on it there yeah and is it the footnote or is it just the last of the no, text kind of in the middle of that paragraph where, just start uh, reading it i'll uh, i'll bring it up so yeah and this is what we wrote in the brief uh, defending itself against an APA challenge to the deeming rule in 2017 the fda wrote that quote congress authorized the fda to subject any tobacco product to the tobacco control act as it deems fit without articulating any standards to cabin the agency's discretion. And, um, hmm. and, and then, you know, down at the bottom, and then, you know, they also wrote, so in the parenthetical there, F FDA wrote that Congress's choice of the deferential word deems and the absence of any standard in italics there, beyond the requirement that the product meet the definition of a tobacco product, demonstrate that Congress committed the exercise of this authority to the agency's broad discretion. That's direct quote from the FDA's memo in the Nikopur case. And then uh, the following sentence, I talk about how the, the district court agreed with them and, and basically said, yeah, you're right. Um, the statute did not provide standard for when and how you're, you're to exercise your power to deem. Um, so, this unbounded you know, delegation of deeming authority violates the Constitution. Right. And then, uh, so, right. So that was so, I, you know, in our brief. <laughs> What we're looking at is my brief to the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals right here. And so, you know, as a segue into my argument, I, I, I just I teed it up with the FDA's own words there that we just read through where they said, look, you can't argue our decision to deem was arbitrary because there are no standards. We can do do what we want. Um, what's what's beautiful about that is, be, you know, in 2017, this was two years before the Gundy case came out, and and nobody at the FDA thought they they'd be you know defending against a non-delegation challenge apparently, because you know otherwise they wouldn't have said that on paper to a federal court, but 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 that's you know that is the key that is our case right there, that is exactly our point. They and we've told the Fifth Circuit they were right in 2017, and now ever since then, they're scrambling to to try to cobble together some type of standard. And now they're saying, oh, well, if you look at the, if you look at the statements of purpose, which you read earlier from the district court's decision, that's enough. But the, but the problem is, like I said earlier, th those, those purposes are at odds with one another, some of them, and there is no standard in the statute and, and it can't be up to the FDA to make the policy 
you know, decisions about what to prioritize in terms of its. So overall, when you look at uh, your job, the mountain you need to climb, I know you said you think you're going to win, but there's a lot of skeptical vapors out there. Uh, there's not been a lot of good news. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, what can we expect? You know, I, I do, I've said this from the beginning, I do believe we're going to win. Um, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so so people will, will believe that when, when they see it, I guess. But I'll, I'll say, you know, one, we've, we've got a great signal already in that, um, you know, we lost in the district court, uh, of course, and which is why we, we've appealed. And I expected that from the beginning. It, it's hard to get, you know, district judges to, to really... When when nobody's won an argument for 85 years like this, like on a, on one of these structural constitutional principles, it, it's very hard to get a district court to stick its neck out and say, you know what, actually you're right on this. Um, and so I wasn't surprised by that. But but when you have a panel of three judges in the court of appeals who are going to look at it closely and read all the briefs closely and read the cases, I think we're going to win. And the fact that they've, you know. Less than 20% of civil appeals in the Fifth Circuit get oral argument. A lot of people may not know that. They may think that if you file an appeal, you you know you argue every case, but but actually it's a small minority of cases where the court wants oral argument. And in, and in our case, they asked for oral argument um, on July 1st. And so that's a whenever you're trying to cha challenge the decision below, which we are here. That's a great sign. If they want argument, it means it means somebody on that panel has questions that they want mm -hmm. the FDA to answer. And uh, what about the COVID issue in terms of, well, COVID? Are you going to get that oral face-to-face? -face? Well, so, you know, they said it for oral argument July 1st. Then we got a message last week that uh, that they have canceled all the argument, not just our case, but, but they've they're not going to hold arguments in person in the courtroom in New Orleans uh, during that week. Um, so they, they, they canceled all of them for in-person argument, but they're going to let the parties know um, how they're going to handle the case. So, so I'm hoping that they're going to hold the argument by video conference. Um, and, and I suspect they still will, but we're, we're waiting on that confirmation. And how has um, the vaping community um, responded to this effort? I mean, has it been making waves? You've been getting help. Sometimes you get pushback. What's been going on? No, well, uh, you know, it's. I think we've got a bit of a, a sleeper case. I mean, people who have been following us and supporting us, I think, have have confidence. Or, you know, um, uh, and, and thank thank you, you know, to all those folks who've done that because, that you know, our our membership. Is, is, is what's paying for this case. There's no other way to litigate it. Um, you know, but not everybody has, has um, I think some people have been skeptical, maybe because they've, they've been told from on high that, that it's, not, uh, it's not a good idea. You know, there, there's some hesitance, um, I think, from some circles to put this back in the hands of Congress mm. um, because they, they fear, you know, we could get something worse. But... Right. My, my response to that would be, you can't, if you don't change the status quo right now, 99% of the industry can't survive anyway. So there's, there's nothing to lose by striking down the deeming rule and the deeming authority. Um, and I do think when you put it back in the hands of Congress, you're going to, uh, 
I mean, because the, just to go back to that for a minute, why do I say that? Because the simple fact is vape shops and even even only the absolute largest manufacturers with huge you know, market capitalization can possibly afford to go through this process. And uh, and in fact, if you haven't already started and spent millions of dollars, there's no time left. Um, I mean, you can't even get a lab to do the testing that's required. So either you're either you have to strike down the, the, the authority at its root. Or you have to rely on, you know, um, a change of heart from the FDA or or somebody in the executive. They're going to change the rules as we go along. And that just hasn't happened. Um, so, so, you know, there's some yeah. skepticism, but I, I think it's it's not well founded. I think we have to win this case or, you know, or everybody's out of business. Is this a Hail Mary? Uh, I guess it depends how you look at it. In, I mean, it's it's a Hail Mary in the sense that. It's it's the last case standing. No, you know all these other federal cases challenging the FDA's authority have lost. Um, even even the ones that um, that are still you know percolating up. It, even if they win, it's just going to change the compliance deadline by by some amount of time. Ours is the only one that really has a shot at fundamentally changing the regulatory landscape for the vaping industry. Um, from that, from that standpoint, you know, if you just look at it superficially, the fact that everybody else is lost and we're the last one standing, it seems like a Hail Mary, but I'll tell you, I mean, as a lawyer in the case, um, having read all these cases and written this argument and the fact that the fifth circuit is, wants to hear oral, oral argument, I, I do believe we're going to win. I do think we're right on the law. And if we need to go to the Supreme Court to get to that point, that's what we're going to do. We've said that from the beginning. Uh, you know, we've, we've got we've got a plan to litigate this. We're going to take whatever step we need to make. I think we'll win in the Fifth Circuit. But if we if we don't win, we're going to immediately um, you know move for a stay and seek Supreme Court review and also seek seek uh, review by the full panel of the Fifth Circuit. All all 16 or 17 judges. You know, it's, that's called an en banc rehearing. If we lose at the panel level, which is three judges, then 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 we can at the same time we'll ask for the the whole Fifth Circuit to rehear the case, and we'll petition the Supreme Court to review it, um, and and ask for for an injunction in the meantime. So, you know this, and, and if we win, I'm sure the FDA will appeal, and so we'll go up to the to the court anyway, probably. Well, I mean, it sounds exciting. I mean, obviously, you know. You know, I, we're, we're pro-regulation, but there has to be some kind of a limit. And when there's nothing being set, when, again, I just always come back to, you know, coming down to plastic. When plastic and batteries can be, you know, deemed a tobacco product, it's just crazy. Because, in fact, in, in our minds, so much of the problems that we're seeing in the Western world comes down to the mendacity of definitions. And in its regulatory bodies that own the ability to define and it's by their definitions, I think, that a lot of people's health and well-being uh, hangs in a thread. Well, and I, and I think I want to say something that, that I think will speak to a lot of the frustrations that people in this community have. And I have, you know, I came to this case, I, I, I didn't know the first thing about, I mean, I'm not a vapor. Um, you know, I'm a constitutional litigator. And so I got, I, I got on this case because, because of my experience doing constitutional arguments, uh, you know, not because I was already like, involved in the industry. So I, I came at it without 
any sort of predisposed opinion of it, right? And but when I looked at what was happening and how these guys were being regulated and just railroaded by the federal government, um, it, it was really disturbing. And and I and and this argument turned up, and I think we have a, a good argument and really want to win this case. And you know, but I began to see how like where this frustration comes from. And this going back to something you said earlier um, about you know we we started off talking about how like. The, the whole theory behind this, this this modern administrative state is that you need you need these supposed experts in the executive to make these decisions, right? And that's what these courts always re, re, refer back to. Well, you know, we who are we to say Congress needs to be more specific? You need experts, and and, and note that that idea is premised on the on the assumption that experts. Are going to do the right thing, or going that that you can have this body of experts that makes disinterested, you know, non-politically biased decisions. And part of the argument we're driving at in this appeal is that is that this the way that the federal government has railroaded vaping, and the way it, it actually is an example of if you look at the actual fact, you know, for example, the way that the CDC was manipulating the public statements on the valley. And, you know, they cite these these uh, national youth tobacco survey studies um, about this uptick in, in youth vaping, but never, never drilling down to the actual data, never, never disclosing the fact that that was driven almost entirely by one product or one type of product. You know, it wasn't open system uh, tank systems like uh, like vape shops typically sell. It was one particular type of product. Um, but for months. The FDA just, um, you know, they, they would manipulate those public statements and be deliberately obtuse and vague because they wanted to use the uptick in youth vaping to go after the industry as a whole, right? When it would make more sense, if you really had experts being honest, they would have told the public the truth about not only what's causing a valley, but but what, you know, what the fact that 80, 90 or more percent of people in high school using uh, vaping are using a particular type of closed system that has nothing to do with open system open system. So we've pointed that out to the court and I think this case is actually an ideal vehicle to show it it that from that standpoint this case stands to potentially kick a huge hole in the modern administrative state if we if we get to that point and the court recognizes that argument because it's an example of how it directly undermines the whole basis for the administrative state. And it's an example of how if you give these expert bodies too much authority, where it's political authority to make high level political decisions, you actually undermine their expert role. They're not they're not able to operate anymore and do their legitimate function because they're they're they're, they're driven and motivated by politics, by by the president or by the secretary of the HHS or whatever, you know, that. I mean, I would imagine the the public relations folks over at FDA were were probably, you know, manipulating the way that Evali was discussed in in the CDC's public statements. Um, well, I think there's no doubt about that, and I don't believe that that was actually political pressure coming. I think from top down. I think that was a horizontal pressure from others in. Um, you know, the public health movement, because the public health movement's got its own particular ideology. 
Well, okay, then, and you may be right, and that's and it, it, that's another. You know, it's easier to capture a regulatory agency than it is than it is by interest groups than it is to capture a you know a body of five hundred thirty five uh, representatives. Uh, absolutely, no doubt. Well, it, I mean, it's an interesting case. Um, hopefully, more people pay attention to it out there and support it um, after they take a look uh, at the case, and they can do that at uh, theusva.org. And where can they go on your site? Because you've got a pretty good resource there too as well. Yeah, if you go to navarlaw.com and it's N-A-J-V-A-R law.com, there's a, um, I think it's called Featured Cases. And and so we have a page dedicated to uh, this case, which is Big Time Vapes versus FDA. And and we're we're, we're archiving the um, you know, the, the main uh, substantive arguments there from both sides and the court's opinion. So as we go along, we'll have, uh, we'll, the, you know, the basic information about if you want to read more into the arguments, those are there. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Jared, and do, you know, keep us updated on how it goes. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. You bet. Now just stay right there for me for one second. And uh, that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did, and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.